Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Zern. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm pretty well. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling, it's nice. It's uh, my favorite time of year, autumn. Okay, yeah. good for you. Yeah, what about you? How are you doing? It's spring. I love it. Nice. <laughs> Would you know what's ridiculous? Oh, me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Okay, go ahead. Oh, man. Do you know that there was once a knee injury that was worth about $11.5 billion? My knee? I've done that. Yeah, there was a knee injury that was worth was $11.5 11. billion. Tell me more. Okay, you see, a long time ago, there was a high school wrestler. This kit was pretty good. But while he was in high school... He injured his knee. Mm. He didn't know what to do. But since he'd hurt his knee and he was feeling restless and he could no longer wrestle, he joined his high school's acting troupe. He started performing, did school plays, eventually went off to Hollywood. By then, he'd changed his name from Thomas Mapother IV to what you know him as now, Tom Cruise. Oh, God. And his total career box office as a movie star is roughly $11.5 billion worldwide. That was a world-changing knee injury, Elizabeth. It really was. <laughs> the look really on your was. face is so exasperated. Look, I don't know what to tell you. I recently became a Tom Cruise fan, and I, I used to hate the guy. I couldn't yeah. watch any movies with him. And now I'm just like, I love that guy. He's so strange and intense. How could I not like him? <laughs> right? So there you go. That was my I, best impression of a Paul Harvey story. Page I, two. I can't stand Tom Cruise. I know you can't. That's why I told you. Isn't I it just, ridiculous? I just. Knee yeah, injury. that's ridiculous. One knee injury started all of this. Yeah, those. but you know what's more ridiculous is that you're now a Tom Cruise fan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can't believe it either. I know. Uh, I think I'm doing a bit just on I myself. I think so. I think. Well, you know, I'll run a bit into the ground. So I'll wait for you to run this one out. Uh, do you know what else is ridiculous? No, Aside but I think from you do. your love of Tom Cruise. My newfound love of Tom Cruise. <laughs> Financial crime? That's art crime. Ooh. This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. 
It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. You damn right. There it is. I talk a lot about art crime. You talk a lot. Like a lot. Like a lot, though. No, you do. You love the art crimes. And they've always been forgers, really. You you do like the fakes. Yeah, I love them. Can't get enough. Why do you like the fake ears? I I just love it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So today, though, I have an art crime from the other side of the aisle, so to speak. Oh, somebody who destroys art. No, this is on the auction house side. Oh, that other side. Serious auction house. Uh Uh-huh. Auction and adventure. Is that the name of the no, place? I oh, just... Oct- okay. I kind of, <laughs> so, I was like, I'm going to introduce. A you couple... made that face. I was paying know, attention right? to what I'm going to introduce saying. a couple of characters in this. Oh, later. Uh, some heroes, some villains, some both. Yeah. They contain multitudes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. As do we all, right? So let's begin mm-hmm. uh, with Adolf Alfred Taubman. A. A. Taubman. Yeah, he goes by Alfred Taubman. I bet he does. He his is an incredible story. Dolphy is a tough nickname. Yeah. Uh, so he was born in 1924 in Pontiac, Michigan. Okay. You know, I always like to set the stage. Yeah. Okay. Uh, give you an idea who this guy is. Uh, he invented the Pontiac car. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, not. he didn't. He did not. He invented the olds. Yeah. His, uh, he's just from Pontiac. His mm. parents were Jewish immigrants who came over from Poland. His dad was in real estate development and his dad built the first synagogue in Pontiac. Good on him. Good for him. Taubman had a stutter and he had difficulty reading and writing because of some dyslexia. And he was left-handed but forced to use his right hand, which mm. was so common in those days. Oh, yes. Um, but he had a broader vision, bigger than any hurdle put in his way. What was it? He once said, quote, when I look at something, I have a sense, not of what is, but what of what could be. Oh, he's like Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, he's basically Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. So he started small. He took part-time jobs selling shoes and, like, working construction to put himself through the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then he left college. He left University of Michigan while he was still a freshman to serve in World War II. Oh, good man. So, you know, signed right up. Yeah. Um, When he got back from the war, he studied art, architecture at Lawrence Technical University near Detroit. Okay. Um, And he took night classes. He worked as a junior draftsman during the day at an architectural firm. But then he bounced out of college again, and then he just headed right into the working world. Okay. I feel you. So he saw that the post-war boom Mm -hmm. of the middle class was coming. Oh, yeah. Like, he got it. War's good business, and he had that larger vision. That's that Bobby Kennedy thing. Right. He's Bobby Kennedy. (laughs) So he opened a real estate development company in 1950, and he borrowed $5,000 to build and rent out a bridal shop in Detroit. That was the beginning of his empire. His real estate is like, these people are going to get married. They're coming back from the war. They're going to get married. Here's this building. I'm going to put a bridal shop in it. I'm going to rent it out. It's a good read. Yeah. Well, so, and it is. It's perfect. And so from there, he's just making all this money on it. So he builds a shopping plaza in Flint, Michigan, Mm -hmm. and he put the stores. This was totally new at the time. So he put the stores in the back of the big lot, and Mm -hmm. he put the parking spaces out front. Oh. So instead of having to park on the street and it's yeah. taking up this whole thing, he buys this lot, puts everything in the back. So he basically makes kind of a modern shopping mall. Well, yeah. That I mean, we like, would recognize. He sees, that's exactly what he did. And he saw this like boom in car ownership and usage. And, you know, people, they're in their sweet rides with fins. They mm-hmm. want to shop, baby. Oh, yeah. So he's like, helps him out. Each venture that he had made more and more money. And his business expanded to just bigger projects all over the country. Hmm. This is how he explained it, quote, suburban growth after the war allowed us to build large developments based on new road patterns and new freeways that came in. 
we were able to duplicate a great degree what occurs in a downtown all under one ownership and one control. Ah, uh, yeah. Malls. Yeah. Hmm. So he's credited by everyone with the popularization of malls. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, damn. Out. By 1953, he owned a bunch of strip shopping centers, like little strip malls. Uh-huh. His developments, um, the mall at Short Hills, uh, still that one is still one of the most profitable shopping centers in the country. Still going. Damn. He designed uh, the mall to have really wide entryways. Okay. And be very uh, welcoming and well, he feel wanted, like a cathedral of commerce. Yeah, well, he wanted to avoid what he called threshold resistance. Oh, yeah. Think totally. of that term, threshold, threshold resistance. Yeah. Um, he made the malls welcoming. He mm-hmm. put waterfalls and like plants and stuff, yeah, skylights. Yeah, circular plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his thinking was, quote, we want people to get in easily and get out easily. Getting out is just as important as getting in. That man drives a woman for shopping on Saturday, and he has trouble getting out so he can't see a football game. He'll say, don't ever bring me back here again. He's, he ain't lying. He ain't lying. So he pulled in big names in retail, high-end okay. joints. Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Nordstrom, Marshall Fields, Yves Saint Laurent, Louis Vuitton, Ralph mm-hmm. Lauren. Um, so the malls were posh. He was oh, yeah. putting up the posh stuff. There's not I Magnum that way, is it? I don't think so, okay. no. Um, and so these are places to see and be seen, to meet mm-hmm. friends, take your family, get a meal, watch a movie, shop. Oh, yeah. uh, and so he kept putting that larger vision to work. He constantly tinkered with layouts. He saw that women were actually the ones buying more menswear than men. Yep. And Real so smart find. He started catering to the female customers. He put makeup counters on the first floor. Yes. Because he saw that that was the place where the most time is spent. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to go in and out. And cosmetics have the highest markup of all the retail items. And they smell nice and feel good when you walk in. I mean, uh I remember as a kid, you always have to walk in generally through the makeup. And like, let's face it, ladies be shopping. Am I right, fellas? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Uh, So at one time, Taubman owned and managed 19 regional shopping centers in the United States. He was a self-made billionaire and was on Forbes 400 list of richest Americans for two decades. And this guy's going to be a, a crimer at some point. Yes, he is. That's like, wow. A successful crimer. Yeah, like, why did, he, had, why did he turn? He's got it all. He's got it all. Well, you know, we always want a little a bit more. more. Yeah. So there were critics of his, of course, because, you know, the fact that malls chipped away at jobs and businesses oh, in yeah, downtown. Oh, yeah, eroded downtowns. Yeah, it's troubling, yeah. you'll say. And he sort of set the stage for Walmart to come in and, like, wreck shop on yeah. all the small mom and The whole mom big and box revolution. Yeah, so this mollification was felt especially in places like Detroit, who were struggling to save their downtowns when the Mm -hmm. suburbs were luring everyone away. Um, And then there's the whole paving of paradise for the creation of parking lots. So, (laughs) so long, farmland, green space, hello, smog, and traffic and overcrowding. (laughs) Taubman, though, not hearing it. He said that malls were the modern-day equivalent of ancient marketplaces, exotic bazaars. Well, he's not wrong. I mean, that's exactly what they're modeled on. It's the the Turkish bazaar for a modern car. Exactly. So uh, by the late 1950s, he hooked up with Max Fisher, a Detroit uh, financier. Oh, yeah, I know the name. And by hook up, not in an intimate sense, but as a business partner. Yeah, he's actually a big business person, if I'm not mistaken. So Fisher hired Taubman's firm to build something to go hand in hand with all them parking lots Uh he was laying down. Speedway gas stations. Oh, wow. Right? So here's Taubman building the America we know today. Seriously. Over-consuming, spending, <laughs> burning, selling, expanding, well-sated America. That America. My America. 
So, oh, America to me. <laughs> this is America. So while he may have been building for the everyman and woman, mm-hmm. Taubman was living life with the swells. I mean, he's a billionaire, yeah. right? Self-made, no doubt. And he loved art. Huh. Oh, here we go. Starting here to get it near it. He I'm feeling col- the heat. <laughs> right? It's a tingle. He collected old masters, French impressionists, modern artists like Jackson Pollock. And every piece in his collection was a forgery. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> oh, not true. No. <laughs> so, he liked it. He just couldn't see very well and he had so no idea. hot for forgeries. Um, I mean, I'm guessing some probably were, like, you know, what if somebody law just of averages watched, and all. They, all they want is to have a forgery collection. That's like, not what, that's my goal That now. would be you. That you would, would just me. have a collection of, of forgeries. All the fakes. Uh, he's a cultured fellow, yes, right? right? So he was a board member on, like, a number of cultural organizations. He liked the finer things in life. And luckily, he could afford them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was these mega deals, like the one that he pulled off in 1977, that made him a real Richie Rich. Because, mm. see, in 1977, he went to a friend with an idea. Let's put together a group to outbid a giant corporation on a piece of land. Mm. Who's the friend? Donald Bren. Probably haven't heard of him. Don't know that name. Fellow real estate developer. He was based out of Mission Viejo in Southern California. Okay. Today... Bren ranks 112, where the players dwell, on the Forbes billionaires <laughs> list due to his net worth of $16.2 billion. Dang. Right? So what's the giant corporation they're going to go up against? Mobile oil. Ooh. And what's the piece of land? The Irvine Ranch. Wow. So that may not mean much to you. So let me enlighten you yeah, and right anyone on. within earshot. The Irvine Ranch is this enormous parcel that stretches nine miles along the Pacific coast Mm -hmm. and then 22 miles inland. And it contains more than 20% of Orange County within this area. (laughs) And Orange County is huge, by the way. It's one of the biggest. 798 square miles. So inside Irving Ranch are the city of Irvine, Mm -hmm. the University of California at Irvine, parts of Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, and Anaheim, unincorporated county land, and little bits of Santa Ana and Costa Mesa. Wow. So the Irvine Ranch was first cobbled together by James Irvine in 1864. And he got the land from Mexican and Spanish land grants. Yeah, from California's, right? Yeah, exactly. So he dies in 1886, and his son, James Jr., inherits it. He's only 19 years old. Mm -hmm. He, James Jr., and his friend rode bicycles from San Francisco down to Orange County to inspect his inheritance. Like penny farthings, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) That's outrageous. Isn't that I mean, crazy? there's no infrastructure to help you. I mean, Zero. like, you're just obviously sleeping oh, on the on side the, of the road. But they're like, on El Camino Royale, yeah. is what they're doing. It's like they're just taking from mission to mission to get down wow. there. So That Junior, even gave me pause, and I have all kinds of bad ideas. <laughs> so, Junior takes the land from ranching to farming and builds an agricultural empire. Mm-hmm. He had tenant farmers. They grew lima beans, black eyed peas, sugar beets, walnuts, avocados, strawberries, lemons, oranges. Lots of citrus. Lots of citrus. During the 50s and 60s, Orange County was the fastest growing county in the nation. Yeah. Because what's up, Disneyland? It was the model of what you thought of California if you're outside of California. Right. So, the Irvine Company had to decide what to do with the land mm-hmm. sell or like, you know, develop it piece by piece in the name of urbanization, like keep it one parcel. Mm -hmm. So they went with the development of a master plan. And in 1960, an architect was hired to create a vision for this entire new community. There'd be houses and jobs and retail and schools and parks and open spaces. There would still be agriculture because Irvine Ranch is still one of the nation's largest providers of avocados. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge avocado region. Yeah. In 1961, the Irvine Company sold 990 acres to the University of California system hmm. for $1. Wow. 
And this was for the purpose of creating a new campus, which became the University of California, Irvine. Yeah, sure. The school was named in honor of the Irvine family, not the city of Irvine, because that city didn't even exist yet. Ah. So the city of Irvine was officially incorporated in 1971 that grew up around this campus. I didn't know it was that late. Isn't that me neither? 1977, Mobile Oil wanted that land. I bet they did. Which is scary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's some of the most valuable real estate you can imagine. Yeah. So Taubman, he got with his buddy Bren, and they put together a group to outbid Mobile. So they paid $337.4 million for the Irvine Ranch. Hmm. That's the equivalent of $1.7 billion today. And I feel that's undervalued given Completely. what's on that land. Completely. So then six years later, Taubman sold his interest to Bren and made himself a tidy $100 million on the deal. Huh. And that's the equivalent of $300 million on you know, today. Okay. So in the period of six years, he makes $300 million bucks. Um, He called the purchase of the Irvine Ranch the best deal since the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> At least he ain't grand about no. it. <laughs> so Bren, he took over the Irvine Company and has catapulted himself into super wealth with it. Um, the Irvine Company owns more than 120 million square feet of real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's hotels, marinas, golf courses, 550 office buildings, 125 apartment complexes, wow. 40 shopping centers. Uh-huh. Um, and he actually, Bren currently owns about 97% of the MetLife building in Manhattan. Okay. So these guys, like, they all gathered together and they're all these sort of like self-made developers. Interesting. Let's take a break. Okay. When we come back, I'll let you know what else Alfred Taubman bought with his incredible wealth. And here's a hint. Yes. I love drinking the stuff. And there's art in here. And crime, trust me. Okay. We'll be we'll get to it. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaron. Hey. Hi. Hi. What are you doing here? Hey. Oh, that's right. We were doing story time. Yeah, we're doing story time. So. What up? Alfred Taubman. Yes. Rich guy. Mm-hmm. Self-made. True American success story. Yes. Uh, he did that huge deal with the Irvine Ranch. Mm-hmm. And his worth skyrocketed. And he just kept doing deals. His timing was incredible. Right? It's I mean, like. Getting in in California at that moment. He sees like the, the retail boom yeah. in the 50s. He sees the car boom. Yeah. Retail and like the, 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 the whole suburban family idea of like post war mm-hmm. America. Then he goes, you know what? Orange County is like the apotheosis of that. Exactly. So. It's amazing. It's incredible. So in 1982, he bought Lodi's own A&W restaurants. Yes. Get back. He didn't get the drinks, just the restaurant. Oh, okay. Hot diggity. But, I love diet root beer. Dude, I love everything. I love A&W. Like, we used to go, like, you know, people go to, like, uh, Dairy Queen. We would go to A&W. Oh, yeah. That totally. was the one I wanted. I wanted a root beer float. I wanted to rock best. up. Yes. Absolute best. Loved it. And I didn't even go to Lodi. I would go to the To the Lodi. actual yes. OG I wasn't one. that far from it from my hometown. I love it. So, uh... Diet root beer, that's yes. my new vice. I used mm-hmm. to drink a lot of Diet Coke, but I stopped on. that years years ago. Good on you. Um, I've been like on a solid water and crystal light beverage regime for a while. Well, that's good because you know the, the sugars in Diet Coke, if you heat them up, they can turn into like a, basically a wood glue. Right. Well, that's, what I was, that's why I was drinking it yeah. before. And your body heats things up. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. But now I like the Diet Root Beer. <laughs> I like that for you. A&W, the iconic stuff. That's my little treat. If I'm good and obedient and respectful... Mm-hmm. I allow myself a diet root <laughs> Keeps me on the straight and narrow. Obedient and respectful. So you, anyway. You don't do that. <laughs> so Tom, I don't have him very often. <laughs> Tom and he yes. bought the A&W restaurants. Uh-huh. And they started in Lodi, stuck in Lodi again. Yes. Shout out to another California Central Credence. Valley town. Um, see, I can work California or <laughs> the anything. Central Valley into every show. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the restaurants, they weren't doing so hot. And he did a bit of restructuring and then he sold it. In 1994, to Sagittarius Acquisitions, Ugh, I hate those types made of another tidy profit. Right now, though, it's part of that Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, Long John Silver's Yum Brands group. Oh, the one that Pepsi conglomerated then sold to Yum. Completely. So you know, he he got in on the ground floor, repackaged. Made more money. Good on all of uh, them. He bought a ton of stuff in the 80s. He bought department store chains like Woodward and Lothrop. I don't, I've never heard of that Me one. neither. Is that an East Coast brand? Who knows? Okay. Um, between 1983 and 1984, he mm-hmm. was the majority owner of the USFL Michigan Panthers. Oh, get back, USFL, baby. Before he merged the team with the Oakland Invaders Uh-oh. for the 1985 season. Yeah, yeah. very short-lived The football. team, as you know, with the rest of the mm-hmm. USFL, folded yes. after the 85 season, mm-hmm. but I suppose it was fun while it lasted. It was. That was nuts. A lot of great NFL players were actually in the USFL. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I know nothing about that. Oh, yeah. Herschel Walker was in there. I think Ooh. Doug Flutie was in there. Okay. I mean, like, a bunch of... 
Yeah, a bunch of players who had been big Heisman candidates in the early 80s huh. went to the USFL because they were paying more. And the NFL was oh. in like a period where they were not. That's when we had strikes, 84 strike, anywhere. Interesting. Yes. I was curious. Well, thank you for the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. 83, 1983, Alfred. Uh, he made a um, super large purchase. It was one that gets us talking about art and crime today. Okay. So we're here. Yes, we've come. We've arrived. Tobman, he bought Sotheby's Auction House. Whoa. Just bought the whole thing. Wow. Um, it was founded, Sotheby's founded in 1744 uh-huh. in London by a bookseller named Samuel Baker. You know I love booksellers. Yes. And I love bibliodics. Yes. You so, even love Sotheby's. I, well, Not I don't really. know. I don't really have I just threw that around there. Yeah. I feel like I was on a run. <laughs> it was good. Let's pretend. <laughs> um, so you know what was uh, sold at auction in the early days? No. Uh, the library Napoleon took with him into exile. Oh, that damn. Was, his elbow library? Yeah. In 1767, the business became known as Baker and Lee uh-huh. after George Lee became a partner. And then it was renamed Lee and Sotheby in 1778 after Baker died and then Lee's nephew, John Sotheby, inherited his uncle's share. Okay. Um, it went through a shuffle of names. Lee, Sotheby, and Wilkinson. Okay. Sotheby, Wilkinson, and Hodge. Sotheby and Company. Messieurs Sotheby. That's when they're trying to get fancy. <laughs> Sotheby and Wilkinson. Sotheby, Mac Von Way, and Sotheby's and Company. Always Sotheby. I wonder why Always. they just love that name the most. it sounds Sotheby. I guess so. Um, so under I like that, Bonham and Bonham. That's good. That's a good one. Um, under For the, auction houses, I'm saying. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just think in general. Yeah, this sounds good. Under the Sotheby family, the business branched out from books to prints, medals, coins. Um, they didn't get into fine art until the sale of a Franz Hall's painting in 1913. Oh, wow. is that crazy? I thought it would have been much earlier. So they show up like just around cubism. Yeah. Today, though, they're synonymous with fine art. Yeah, that's their thing. Yeah. they In 1977 is when they became a UK public company. Okay. And then in 1980, you know, the economy wasn't so hot. No, not in the sales, UK. Sales are tanking. Uh-huh. They moved their North American headquarters from Madison Avenue, which is like a high-flying one, mm-hmm. to a, a former cigar factory on York Avenue. <laughs> and then they closed the Madison Avenue galleries. They sold their Los Angeles galleries, moved all West Coast auctions to New York. So they're mm. just consolidating. Okay. They're really struggling. And they were down to just $20 million in assets for this huge thing. So it's poor babies, only yes. $20 million. Oh, wait, wait. So they needed to sell. Yes. People came calling. There was a pair of businessmen who offered to buy Sotheby's for $100 million, but management thought they were vulgar. <laughs> so then enter Alfred Taubman. Uh, he smelled blood in the water, mm-hmm. so he made his move. So remember his pal Max Fisher? Yes. The Detroit financier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, they teamed up, and um, they also teamed up with a third guy, a guy called Hank the Deuce. Ooh. Love and this name. They straight up bought and privatized Sotheby's. Now, now is Hank the Deuce like a junior, no. and it's like Hank the Two? Who in the wide world of sports is Hank the Deuce? Dude, who is Hank the Deuce, Elizabeth? Henry Ford II. Oh, the Deuce, son of Edsel, grandson of Henry the OG. Oh wow! So together, Edsel, can we go shout out for Edsel? Big shout out. All right, we go so on. the three captains of industry, mm-hmm. they sweet talked the Sotheby's folks into a deal. It's <laughs> wild, and they loved how the men really appreciated and understood. Art, and they also loved how the men offered them $125 million for the joint, beating out the vulgar guy's offer. Love that. Love that so much. So in 1988, Taubman took Sotheby's public, listed the company's shares on the New York Stock Exchange, making Sotheby's the oldest publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol BID, <laughs> B-I-D. 
Okay. So he he broadened out the clientele of the auction house. They went from dealing with just art dealers to luring in the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, before, Sotheby's was all understated and stayed, and the new one was flashy. They had marketing campaigns. Oh, yeah. He directed this, like, mass mailing of catalogs. They held popular sales. Yeah, they started doing the drops. When they'd have their auctions, they put out, like, that whole show. It's... Right, glossy, glossy catalogs. Mm-hmm. In 1996, they caused this huge stir because they hosted the estate sale of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Mm, yes. That was, like, a big to-do. Um, and it wasn't just the outward-facing aspects of the business that changed. He started offering financing to customers. Really? Yeah. They sold insurance. They offered art education programs. Okay. They gave concessions to consignment sellers. They threw big parties for clients. They gave sellers guarantees for minimums, uh, regardless of sale prices. Really? Yeah. They even had a storage service, like high-end public storage. Okay. Posh pods. Like, I bet their storage... (laughs) had adequate lighting and didn't feel like a training exercise for serial killers. Oh, yeah. Because have you ever been in a self-storage facility that didn't feel, like, gut-bustingly creepy? Um, yeah. The thing is, is weird, though, is I always think about people go into those feeling that way, and then I'm there, and then they project that onto me. <laughs> so there I am having the exact same thought they're having, but, always- but then I get to be the villain, so I don't feel as bad anymore, because now I know they're scared of me, so it's really not that bad it's for me. But like I feel the way you do, and I'm like, oh, man. Low, flickering light, yes, totally. and like a weird hum coming from somewhere. And a somewhere. weird bug circling the light you've never and, seen before. And like black marks along the wall where oh, dolly yeah. wheels have hit it, but it just looks like, did, was someone dragged? Drag, yeah, like bodies were dragged See, through okay. there. okay, yeah. we're on uh-huh. the same page Yeah, you feel that. me. Um, anyway, Sotheby's. Okay. Uh, they started offering like basically an entire lifestyle, how to be rich and cultured. Mm-hmm. Gone was the downsizing. He opened branches in Russia, Monte Carlo, Hong Kong, and they went beyond old masters. He introduced lines in like Victorian painting, Scandinavian art, rock and roll memorabilia. Yeah, a lot of antiques and, ro- and memorabilia. Yeah. I would say that was a big growth. For and them. then these like Lux New York City headquarters he set up. Mm-hmm. And so by 1989, sales for Sotheby's totaled $2.9 billion. Dang. Rival auction house Christie's had sales not too far behind at $2.1 billion. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So for both of the companies, profit margins were slim and expenses were enormous, though. So they're pulling in all this yeah. money, but don't forget, they're just like... Spending a lot spending for all these shows time. and all the stuff that they're doing. And they're basically yeah. like grocery stores, I imagine, where they have a very slim profit margin. Totally, totally. So let's let's go to 1994. Let's. Let's do it. I remember 1994. Me too. Taubman, he was busy that year. Mm-hmm. He heard that 81-year-old civil rights icon Rosa Parks. Oh, yes. My been, friend had stole her fork. He'd been, she'd been robbed and beaten at her house in Detroit. Was that your friend? No, I did, I did not I didn't know you were going well, with that. Here that's I am, where I'm going. I'm setting up like, oh, my friend so stole like, from her. You're like, my friend beat her up. Yeah, oh, like, no. that's great, Sarah. I'm he glad was you a waiter with... at the House of Blues. And then she, she came in and he loved her. He was a black studies major. He thought she was like an icon icon right he thought like everything she did with the NAACP office it was amazing huge fan of Thurgood Marshall he so he steals her fork and he comes back and he's like I got Rosa Parks fork I'm oh like my God. all of your love for her this is what you this think I'm going to steal her personal property he's like no it was a house of blues fork she just used it I stole from my work I'm like well that's, that's fair weird. anyway so she you didn't, said weird I said fair she didn't rob and beat her in a, <laughs> no, okay it was not him anyway so <laughs> She's at her home in Detroit, okay. and your friend busts in <laughs> and robs and beats her. Stop. And Alfred Taubman hears about this. Uh-huh. So this good guy, son of Pontiac, Michigan, he's outraged. Oh, as he should be. He moved Rosa Parks into the Riverfront Towers. Good. And you know him. who else lived there? No, I don't. Aretha Franklin. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love this. Nancy Kerrigan. 
Okay, Don't whatever. Forget, 1994 was the year she got into the old blammo oh, with she that got other her, girl, yeah, Tanya Harding. When she got need. Right. And this, so this began, this began a friendship between the two, not Tanya it, Harding we're and, talking about and Aretha and Franklin. Parks, not Aretha and, and Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan. Uh, so Tobin and Parks, they become friends. Yes. In 2000, he arranged for Parks to fly in a private plane to Montgomery, Alabama for the opening of the Troy University Rosa Parks Museum. I love this guy. He's good people. Well, let's go back to 1994. What else happened in 1994? Uh, the Wu-Tang Clan was on tour? No. Oh. He appointed Diana Brooks, Dee Dee uh-huh. Brooks, uh, president and CEO of Sotheby's. Okay. And this would be a hinge point for the company. Oh. Yeah. So it's during this time that a series of closed-door meetings take place. I love those. Taubman meets with Sir Anthony Tennant, chairman of Christie's. Oh. So that joint was founded in 1766, 20 years after Sotheby's. Yeah. So they're like the young upstarts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what happens at these secret meetings? Taubman and Tennant, they ordered the company's CEOs, Diana Brooks uh-huh. and Christopher Davidge, to end competition between the two houses. They agreed that they're no longer going to give discounts to clients. They're going to, you know, fix commissions. Okay. Ladies and germs, we call that price fixing. I was just about to say, I think I know what that's yeah. called. That's price fixing. <laughs> it's price fixing. So like if those people who owned just farms that sold seeds, that's price, that's price fixing. fixing. So Brooks and Davidge, they come up with this plan that they're going to they're going to charge sellers the same amount and non-negotiable fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is erasing competition Completely. altogether, and it's a good way to attract consignments. The most important part of the plan, though, was to keep a lid on it. Yeah, you got to keep that yeah, quiet. They didn't want anyone to know what they were cooking. If you're at. running a monopoly, you don't let you, people know. You don't advertise it. So soon, Sotheby's raised the buyer commission from 10% to 15% on the first $50,000 of the final purchase price. Okay. Six weeks later, Christie's does the same. What a coincidence. <laughs> so they've raised their commission prices so that everybody who's working there gets their beak wet, essentially. Exactly, okay. exactly. So in 1995, Christie's went first uh, on the collusion uh, train, and they instituted a sliding scale for fees. Hmm. Not too long after that, Sotheby's does the same, same scale. People start to notice. Some of the people that noticed worked for the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So 1997, an investigation began. Prosecutors would eventually determine that sellers were cheated for as much as $400 million in commissions. Wow. Wow. The Justice Department's probe went public uh, with a big announcement. Christie's had agreed to cooperate in exchange for conditional immunity from criminal prosecution. (laughs) Christie's did. Yikes. So Christie's CEO, Christopher Davidge, he confirmed that they had participated in anti-competitive practices and price fixing. He's like, yep, we did it. So wait, are they just trying to snitch first? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Sotheby's, they start to panic. Yeah, of course they should. They're holding the bag. Yeah, Diana Brooks, CEO, and Taubman both resigned. As He resigns as chair. She resigns as CEO. Wow. Taubman, though, stuck around as the company's controlling shareholder. Okay. So, of course, he said he had no idea what was going on. Oh, yes. But, you know, he he said, I know who did, though. CEO Diana Brooks (laughs) lays it all at her feet. (laughs) He's driving the bus. (laughs) Oh, totally. So, friends friends of Taubman, uh, they thought that he'd been pulled into something way above his head. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a good dude, and he knows real estate development, but the art world, it's wild, full of sharks, no good nicks. Yeah. I do believe that Taubman could hold his own in pretty much any scenario, though. He sounds like kind but of who like knows? a man amongst men. You who know, knows? Like... I, I, guess he, I guess he's the one who knows. So <laughs> after a four-year investigation, there was a confession. Sure. Diana Brooks confirmed that there had been a price-fixing scheme with her counterpart at Christie's, all of it engineered by Taubman. 
the chairman, mm-hmm. and the chairman of Christie's, Sir Anthony Tennant. So Christie's CEO, Christopher Davidge, he also confessed and sold his boss up the river. Oh, nice. So prosecutors offered to reduce Brooks's punishment if she pled guilty and implicated Taupin. Mm-hmm. She agrees. Uh-oh. So as promised, we have art and we have crime. <laughs> there it is. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll see how Alfred Taubman fared in the legal system. I'm wondering how he dodges this. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About $6 million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Zarin. Hey. Hey, over here. Uh, When we left off, Sotheby's chairman, Al Taubman, and CEO Diana Brooks had colluded Mm -hmm. with former chairman of Christie's, Sir Anthony Tennant, to fix commission rates charged to buyers and sellers. Yes. This was, according to the feds, a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was put into Anti-monopoly place. Anti-monopoly action, Exactly. Right? They want to safeguard against secret agreements to set prices that, you know, just wouldn't cut it in mm-hmm. a competitive market. And the thought was that this would prevent monopolies, as you said, and then save customers from inflated costs. It's basically trust busting, as the old uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. Exactly. So Brooks, she cooperates with the government, but it didn't keep her out of jail. So she gets convicted and fined $350,000. She's ordered to serve 1,000 hours of community service, and she gets sentenced to three years probation. Hmm. So, I mean, she gets out of jail, but she doesn't get out of punishment. Yeah, totally. Um, so she spent the first six months in home detention, and her term ended in, you know, end of 2002. Okay. Taubman admitted to meeting with tenant, you know, the Christie's yeah. guys. Like, sure. But he said there was no agreement, no collusion. He said that Brooks lied in order to get a reduced sentence. Hmm. And there's no recordings or receipts and no and the only other person who's backing her is David. There's there's there are um schedules and diaries that show all the meetings. Oh, okay. But there's no recordings. Okay, yeah. It just says this person was in the room or scheduled exactly. to meet. Exactly. And the okay. and the feds were like, "Come on, 12 times. Like why yeah. are they meeting?" And yeah. so that's one of the like the arguments that they had. Hmm. Talbot had friends in high places. And that's what happens when you're rich. Oh, yes. That's so, how you buy them. Right. So a character witness called to testify to his good character was a U.S. Court of Appeals judge who was a close friend. Do I know this name? No. No. Oh. Um, and so the <laughs> trial, it went on for 16 days. Okay. In the end, he was convicted on the charges of antitrust violations. Hmm. His attorney said, quote, we're, of course, very disappointed in the verdict, and we'll review all of our options and decide what we will do next. That is the most lawyer answer ever. Completely. So uh, Christopher Tennyson, who was a longtime personal spokesman for Taubman, said, quote, We're all stunned. This is an ordeal. It's been two years for him, and unfortunately, it continues. <laughs> so he gets fined $7.5 million. Shazam. Oh, wow. He was also sentenced to a year and a day in prison. But I say, oh, wow, to me, that would be a lot. To him, that's to not him, that much like, money, right? It's like pocket change. Yeah. yeah. He's 77 years old at the time. That's what I was wondering. How old is he Diabetic. He's worried about legacy, I imagine. Completely. So um, the legal drama wasn't just coming from the feds. He also had suits filed by shareholders. Oh, yeah. Um, company stock tumbled, of course, when word gets out about the price fixing. Mm -hmm. He settled those suits to the tune of $30 million. Oh, that's less than I thought. Yeah. And then remember, Christie's is wrapped up in this, too. Mm -hmm. So Taubman's counterpart, uh, Sir Tennant, Mm -hmm. uh, he's also indicted, but he's a British citizen. And the UK doesn't extradite for civil matters. (laughs) And as such, he never stood trial. (laughs) Wow. So Christie's and Sotheby's, they're fined $512 million to settle civil claims uh, outside of the shareholders. Taubman paid $156 million of Sotheby's share out of his own pocket. See, I knew it. Yeah. Sotheby's is fine. Another $45 million on top of that. They're just throwing numbers now. And, yeah, <laughs> they're just like, no, more money, yeah, more just... money. We, you, you pay more. William Ruprecht, uh, president of Sotheby's at the time, issued a statement, quote, while we feel for Mr. Taubman and his family... It is time for the company to move on. Oh. Yeah, cold-blooded. Oh. So Taubman, he did 10 months of his ticket at the Federal Medical Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. And he was released in 2003. Throughout it all, he claimed his innocence. Quote, I lost a chunk of my life, my good name, and around 27 pounds. (laughs) 
<laughs> so when he got out... Such a greatest generation answer. He had to report to a halfway house to yes. complete a okay. sentence. Zarin, close your eyes. I was wondering. I know. Oh, okay, my eyes are closed. I want you to picture it. Yes. It's June of 2003. 21 questions by 50 Cent featuring Nate Dogg <laughs> is at the top of the charts. Too Fast, Too Furious is out in theaters. Love it. Amelia Vega of the Dominican Republic just won the Miss Universe contest in Panama City, Panama. <laughs> Sammy Sosa of baseball's Chicago Cubs Damn is ejected right. from a game after he's found to have used a cork bat. Whatever. Martha Stewart's indicted. Metallica's St. Anger album is released. <laughs> Syndicated comic strip Garfield celebrates its 25th anniversary. Hmm. The largest hailstone ever recorded falls in Aurora, Nebraska. Ouch. Zarin, you are living your best life. Yeah. That's what's happening. So you're a caterer working at an event at a large estate in Palm Beach, Florida. Okay. And you also happen to be a psychic who can see the future. Yeah, I like this. So you heard that the owner of the house, Al Taubman, just got out of jail. One of the valet parking guys told you that the dude had been checking out all of his houses up and down the East Coast since getting out. From Southampton, New York, uh, to his place in Manhattan, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and then finally here in Palm Beach. So he got in two nights ago, is what you heard. Guests are coming in, decked out in designer suits and dresses, facelifts for days. (laughs) So you walk around the party with a tray of bouchetta. Uh, Gentle music tinkles in the background, and the guests chatter and chuckle. Mm. You hear talk of tennis games, golf caddies, traffic jams on private jet runways. Mm. Since you read pretty much every magazine you can get your hands on, you recognize a lot of these folks. Mm. You swap out trays and pick up one laden with little toasts topped with obscene amounts of caviar. (laughs) You offer one to a gentleman. He turns and thanks you. You recognize him as Barry Diller. Billionaire founder of Fox Broadcasting Company, USA Network, and member of the Television Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Uh, His wife, fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg, declines your offer of caviar. No, DPF? You close your eyes, and you see that Diller will, almost two decades later, be accused of insider trading. Birds of a feather, you figure. Right here. I can see it. You circle around the room and pass none other than Disney CEO Michael Eisner. Hey, Big Mike. He's telling someone about his son Breck's aspirations to be a full-length film director. He's apparently trying to get a project called Sahara off the ground. (laughs) Said his son is in talks with Matthew McConaughey, Penelope Cruz, and William H. Macy. Since you can see the future... You know that Sahara will be thought to be one of the biggest financial failures in Hollywood history. But a fun movie on a plane. Yeah, but you keep that to yourself when you move on. (laughs) The caviar tray has emptied, so you head back to the kitchen and pick up a plate of figs draped with prosciutto and drizzled with honey. You make your way out to the broad outdoor seating area and head for the first person you see, an elderly man perched on an overstuffed chair. As you approach, you see that it's Henry Kissinger. Whoa. You veer away and head in the opposite direction. No Epicurean delights for war criminals, you say to yourself. You feel a tap on your shoulder. A man asks if you have any ketchup to put on the hors d'oeuvres. You turn to face him, and there he is. Donald Trump. You close your eyes to see the future and drop your tray with a clatter. (laughs) No way, you gasp. You're quickly ushered away and out of Alfred Taubman's welcome back to high-ish society party. Of his time inside, Taubman said, I'm out and I'm not bitter. I believe in the system. It's still the greatest system in the world. It's a hard thing to say, but I still don't know what I did, supposedly. I wouldn't break the law for anything in the world. I never have. And people that know me believe me. Okay. So apparently he used to be a real bruiser, total fighter, like very aggressive. But Mm. after he got out, he was like kinder, softer, gentler. 
Um, and he didn't just survive uh, prison in 2003. His company, Taubman Centers, uh, survived a hostile takeover bid by a property group, the largest mall owner in the nation, Simon Property Group, um, and Westfield America. I was going to say, I thought Westfield was yeah. a real big one. They, yeah. wanted to, they wanted to take him over. Nope. Mm -hmm. Didn't have it. 2005, he sold his controlling interest in Sotheby's for stock and $168 million in cash. Wow. Not hurting. Yeah, not at all. And with that, after 22 years, he was no longer principal owner of Sotheby's. Wow. Uh, before, throughout, and after the scandal, he stayed generous. He funded research facilities for universities, healthcare facilities, libraries. He pledged $100 million to the University of Michigan's A. Alfred Taubman Medical Research Institute. Good on him. He served as president of the Detroit Arts Commission. He paid for public policy programs at Harvard, Brown, University of Michigan. Uh, he was a supporter of stem cell research. He helped the Detroit Institute of the Arts reconfigure traffic flow in the museum by sharing his knowledge of how shoppers made their way through malls. <laughs> That's funny. So like no clocks, no windows, I guess. Um, <laughs> in his late 80s, he got super into supporting adult literacy. Um, and he gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to a program called Reading Works. Uh, free press editor and publisher and chairman of Reading Works, Paul Anger, said, quote, Aside from his support, which was substantial, I never stopped marveling at his energy and his concern that others might live a better life. He never stopped looking for ways to make the community better, to make lives better, to give back. And Zarin, like any good criminal, he wrote a book. Yeah, there it is. In 2007, he released his autobiography, Threshold Resistance, <laughs> The Extraordinary Career of a Luxury Retailing Pioneer. It's a good title. It's great. Now, here's part of the synopsis. Despite the twists and turns, Taubman's life and business philosophy can be summed up in one evocative phrase, Threshold Resistance. Understanding and defeating that force, breaking down the barriers between art and commerce, between shoppers and merchandise, between high culture and popular taste, has been his life's work. Totally. Make it easier for them to say yes and harder for them to say no. Exactly. So he died at the age of 91 of a heart attack at his home in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, in 2015. Governor Rick Snyder said at the time, quote, his greatest legacy will be how he used his fortune to help people in Michigan and beyond. He will be long remembered, not just for his retail genius, but for the lives he touched through his kindness. Nice. This is a man who did 10 months in the clink. Well, you know, but I'm for what he did for Rosa Parks, he's always going to have an honor right? role in my head. Exactly. It's, he's fascinating to me. This is my ridiculous takeaway. Thanks for asking. <laughs> he's fascinating to me because he's such a good person and he's so, you know, uh, driven and, mm -hmm. and, and forward thinking. And I feel like he didn't, there's no way I can see him getting duped on anything. Yeah. So I think he knew damn well what oh, he was completely. doing. completely. But didn't see that it was so bad. Yeah, I don't think he judged uh, how greedy it would appear. Well, and I, it made me wonder about other deals that maybe no one ever found out about. That, I think know, that's whatever. true. But anyway, he's, he's good people Yes. at the end of the day. Well, so uh, my ridiculous takeaway, once again, thanks for asking, I Elizabeth. Didn't, I didn't ask. Is uh, when I was a waiter uh, working and a psychic, and I looked into the eyes of Henry Kissinger for a moment. The thing that struck me was I could see that he was never going to die. I no, mean, he's, he's the undead. The, he's the undying. The man is just darkness <laughs> inside and out. He is. So he it is. scared the heck out of me. And I've never forgotten it, Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm sorry to have put you in that position. I can't believe you brought me back there. <laughs> That was good. I like that. It was fun. Thank you so much. That's all I have for today. You can find us online at RidiculousCrime.com, uh, not .org. Uh, we're also at Ridiculous Crime on both Twitter and Instagram. I will never stop calling it Twitter. 
I I'm not there. What do I care? Yeah. Um, email ridiculouscrime at gmail.com. Leave a talk back on the iHeart app. Do it. Reach out. Do it. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by Chief Mallrat Dave Kustin. Research is by disgraced Edwardian art authenticator Marissa Brown and freelance semi-pro renegade auctioneer Andrea Song Charpentier. The theme song is by catering staff smoking pre-rolls behind the pool house Thomas Lee and Travis Dutton. Host wardrobe is provided by Biden 500. Executive producers are Ben Sotheby and Noel Christie. Ridiculous Crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. <laughs> 